tonight, as we, uh, this is the, the first uh, Sunday in, in Advent, we're, we're going to take a break from our, our series in Mark's Gospel, and we're going to, I'm going to tell you more about this in a moment, but we're going to camp out in uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So I want you to, to either listen or you can follow along as I read to you this passage uh, in your worship folder. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, the first seven verses. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we're going to take a break from from Mark. And uh, between now until uh, the new year, I'm going to, uh, I'll be, I will be here on December 13th, but we actually have Matt Terrell, uh, the REF campus minister at Sanford will be preaching. So for uh, the next, of uh, three of the next four weeks, we're going to meditate on this passage. And uh, I want to do that to help us reflect on, uh, as we lead up into Christmas, to reflect on the coming of Jesus. And what his coming means for us. And in its most basic definition, uh, the word Advent, it simply means coming or arrival. And as we look at the New Testament as a whole, there are actually two comings or two Advents, if you will. And they frame the Christian life and the life of the church. The first coming is Jesus' birth, the incarnation as it's called. But the second coming is his return at the end of history, when he will make everything right. And therefore, we are people who live between the times. We live between his first and his second coming. His first coming and then his return. And so it's accurate to say that we live in a time of waiting, of longing. And it's a time that's marked by seasons of joy And perhaps even more so, seasons of sadness and suffering. So then, what does the story of Jesus coming have to teach us that can sustain us as we wait for his return? The central idea that I want to meditate with you over from this passage over the next few weeks is this. That Jesus has come to turn slaves into sons. Jesus has come to turn slaves into sons. And that central truth that is uh, here for us in these seven verses really is the, the one thing that you need to live between the times, between Jesus' first coming and his return. And so we're going to look at why God sent his son in order to make us children. And there are three answers to this question that we find in just these seven verses. 
The first thing we're going to look at is this week, but we're going to look at the gift of the Father. And then next week we're going to look at the work of the Son. And then in three weeks we will look at the cry of the Spirit. And so this week what I want to do is I want to look at three things that we need to enjoy the Father's gift. And so we're going to focus on verses 1 through 4 tonight. And so the three things that we need to enjoy the Father's gift are these. That we need to first of all understand that we are spiritual slaves. We need to get to know the heart of the Father. And we need to delight in the identity of the Son. So first, let's look at what it means to understand that we are spiritual slaves. This is in verses 1 through 3. But before we, we hone in on that, let me, let me just step back and help you either uh, tell you for the first time or remind you what is the central concern of Paul's letter to the Galatians. The central concern of this letter is that Paul is intent, vehemently so, on preserving the truth of the gospel. The very opening uh, verses of this book to the churches in Galatia tell us that Paul is keenly concerned to make sure that they get the gospel right. And so, and he's particularly concerned to protect the church from the intrusion of what he calls false gospels or another gospel. And it's worth asking, well, what for Paul rises to another gospel or a different gospel or a false gospel? And I think we could simply summarize it like this, that a false gospel, according to Galatians, is anything that would add to or take away from the saving work of Jesus. And in this letter, he has a very short phrase to describe what that looks like. And it's the phrase, works of the law. So a false gospel, according to Paul, is anything that would add to or take away from the saving work of Jesus. And the phrase he uses to describe that problem is works of the law, which it occurs six times in Galatians. And in every case, it stands opposite to faith in Christ. And so right before we come to the passage that we're looking at, Paul spends a good number of verses dealing with and talking about the purpose of God's law. The purpose of God's law and His plan of salvation. And it does raise the question, if we're to understand what it means to be spiritual slaves, we need to get a hold of how, then, does Paul help us to see that? And he helps us to see it by giving this illustration in verse 1 through 3, really is verse 1 and 2, that he then applies to his readers and to the church in verse 3. And what he is telling us here in verse 3, you can see it. He says, In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. His point here is that everyone, Jew or Gentile, male or female, uh, young or old, We're all enslaved spiritually. And the the heart 
of that enslavement is illustrated in this story in verses 1 through 2 of this heir. He says he's talking about an heir who is underage. And in, in, in our text here, it describes this heir as a child, which is accurate. But what I want you to, to read there, that, that word can also mean underage or a minor, which I think more helpfully conveys uh, the point that Paul is trying to make. That he's underage and really is no different than a slave in a household in the first century. Where he's under rules and obligations and restrictions. And Paul uses this illustration to describe what it means, what it looks like to live according to the works of the law. What it means to live under the law, as he describes earlier in chapter 3. And so he, he uses this interesting phrase here in applying this illustration to us when he says, In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, which is a notoriously difficult phrase to interpret. What does Paul mean by the elementary principles of the world? This is a great example of of why it's so important when you come across something in the Bible that you don't understand or you have questions about, you're not sure what, how to interpret it. You need to look from what, you need to look at what comes before. And you even need to look at what comes after. But when we look at what comes before, we begin to see, we begin to see details that help us to understand what Paul means by this phrase. First of all, in verse 2, in the illustration, he describes us in this situation as being under a guardian or a manager. In chapter 3, verses 23, 24, and 25, Paul speaks of being under the law. And he describes the law as a guardian, or another way to translate that word would be a tutor, an instructor. It's a... It's a preparatory uh, tool unto something else. And in verse 23 of chapter 3, he even says that, that we are held captive under the law and imprisoned by it, which is very similar to the language of enslaved in verse 3. So, if we, if we take those details that the context give us, and given the overall concern of this letter, here's what I think Paul means when he says that we are spiritual slaves. What he means when he says we're enslaved to the elementary principles of, of this world. He means by that, seeking salvation. Trying to justify your existence through obedience either to God's law or to some other standard that you believe you must attain to. So it's seeking salvation, seeking to justify your existence through obedience, apart from or in addition to Christ and His work. That's what Paul means when he says, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And it's worth highlighting here What then, for Paul, is the law meant to do in the life of God's people? 
He shows us this, but we, we won't spend too much time on it just for the sake of time. That the law was intended to show us as we really are, who we really are. In order to see Christ as he really is. That the law is intended to show us who we really are in order to, so that we might see who Christ really is. The one who perfectly obeys God's law in our behalf so that we might receive the promised blessing of God's grace and forgiveness. But what that means though then is that the law cannot give life. And he actually says this in verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, For if a law had been given that could give, give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So to be enslaved, to be an heir under age, to use the illustration's um, ideas, is essentially to seek life through your obedience. To seek life through earning God's favor by measuring up. And Paul says, you will never find life there. It cannot be found. A law simply shows you how far you fall short and how much you need someone else to stand in the gap to do for you what you cannot do. So does this mean that we should just forget God's law because it can't give life? And Paul again and again says, no, absolutely not. And and it's worth thinking for a moment, again, to build off the illustration he gives in verses 1 and 2. With a question, is it the design of child rearing that when the child grows to maturity, he or she then casts off all the values of the parent and lives in a totally different way? If all goes well, the child understands the purpose of what they were taught and how it enables them to mature and grow. Paul is not saying that to seek salvation, righteousness, Forgiveness, acceptance only in Christ doesn't mean that God's law has no benefit to you or no purpose for you. It simply means that it cannot give you life. But it certainly does. It can make you wise. It certainly does tell you what is it that God loves? What is it that God wants for you? What is it that God wants for your neighbors? And see, this illustration here in verses 1 through 3, it certainly it packs a, a serious punch. It depends on over 10 verses of incredibly rich, deep, profound truths in this, in this letter that Paul has written to the Galatians. But the point of the story in verses 1 through 2 is that we must go beyond God's law To find the salvation and approval that we need. It means that we must grow up into the fullness of the gospel. That's what the coming of Jesus is all about. But it's worth asking, how is it possible to do that? Given words like enslaved, or held captive, or imprisoned. Those are devastating, hopeless kinds of words. But see here, the illustration tells us how this can happen. In verse 2 when it says, 
until the date set by his father. You see, it all depends on the father's appointed time. Which brings us to the second point, that we need to get to know the heart of the father. Look in verse 4 now. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And I want you to see uh, at least a couple things here about the heart of the father. First of all, with this phrase, the fullness of time, the father has a plan. He is not taken by surprise. He's not shooting from the hip. He's not put out, but he has a plan for the fullness of time. And there are two ways in which this we need to understand this. That it's not only in history that God, 2,000 years ago, the, the completeness, the fullness of his plan became a reality in the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. But that God also, in the fullness of time, has a plan to break in to the lives of sinners like you and me. To where this plan of God, of His saving grace, isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago, but what happened 2,000 years ago actually takes root in and grows up in men and women and boys and girls so that they grow up into the fullness of the gospel and the freeness of God's grace in Jesus. And it's a decisive event. In the fullness of time, God has a plan. But not only that, notice He's generous. The generous gift of the Father in sending His Son. And I want you to to notice that this phrase that God sent forth His Son, it occurs a total of four times in the New Testament. And this is one of them. And the other three times... Uh, One time is in Romans chapter 8, and the other two are all in in John's gospel, and then one in John's first letter. And here we have God himself sending, giving his son. And what I want you to to notice in in, in the famous passage from John 3.16, which says that for God so loved the world that he gave that he gave. I couldn't help but reflect on this, uh, especially today with uh, the votes, that they lost Harper. And yet what I want you to see, the gospel, it's even, it's even deeper and better. God didn't lose his son. God gave his son. At infinite cost to himself. God gave his son. At infinite cost to himself. And I want to draw out one application of this for you. One application, particularly as it relates to continuing struggle against sin in your life. You know, I wonder how many of us uh, how you? How, let me ask you this question: How do you tend to view God when you screw up in the same way, again and again 
and again and again. What is your view of God when you are in that situation? Do you view God as he's put out with you? Uh, Perhaps fearful that maybe this will be the last time that he'll say to you, you know, that's it. You know, I've given you so many chances and you keep on doing the same thing again and again. I've had it. I'm done with you. Now, that, that's hard to, to, break, to break up. It's hard to not believe that, especially if you've had people say that to you. You see, but what I want you to notice here, you need to meditate. If that's you, you need to meditate on this phrase that God sent forth His Son. Because what the gospel is not, the gospel is not Jesus Twisting his father's arm to not give up on you. And it's, it's not Jesus before his father saying, Oh, father, I know Will is messed up again. Please be patient with him. Because I have come. I, I have died on the cross. Please just accept in my place. Just, just please don't, don't give up on him. That is not at all what the gospel is. You see, in the gospel, what you have is the heart of the Father expressed on the cross in the death of Jesus. Or another way to put it is that behind the cross is the heart of God telling you that you now, if you belong to Jesus, you have an airtight case that you can be sure That however much you sin, however much you fail, He will never turn His back on you. John, in his first letter, tells us this is exactly true when he says that God is faithful and He's just to forgive your sin. You see, it would be unjust for God to not forgive you. Why? Because He sent Jesus to secure that. For you. So when you read this passage and it says God sent forth his son, it is a profound statement to you that when it sinks in, should a little at a time persuade you, it should give you assurance that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he's never put out by you, that his grace is sufficient for you. And if the heart of the Father is seen here in the gift of the Son, we need to delight in this gift. And so what does Paul tell us about how are you to delight in the gift of the Son? He tells us two very, very important details about who the Son is for us as our representative. He gives two essential descriptions that underlie everything That Jesus is for us. And notice, it's in verse 4. He says, born of woman and born under the law. Now, here we have in this, in verse 4, we have, there's a parallel passage in Romans chapter 8 that I want to read to you. Because it's, in some ways, 
serves as a commentary on this passage. And then I want to unpack with you a little bit more what he means by born of woman and born under the law. In Romans 8, Paul says very similar things to to, uh, verse 4 here. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, born of woman, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God sent Jesus to do what we, because of sin, couldn't do, nor that by grace we might do it. That's what Paul's talking about in in that passage from Romans 8. So what does he mean, though, when he says born of woman? Or as he says in Romans 8, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Born of woman here, it's a Hebrew way of saying truly human. He he is not primarily here or even secondarily talking about the virgin birth of Jesus. What he is saying is that Jesus became a real human being, just like you and me. He took on all that belongs to our humanity. Now, I know that we say that a lot, or, or you've, maybe you've heard that, but let me, let me test how well that has sunken in to your own Christian experience or your own understanding of the Bible's claims about Jesus. Let me ask you this. In the midst of, of a hard experience or in a, in a fearful season in your life, Have you ever said something like this? Well, of course Jesus could handle this. He's God. Have you ever had that thought or even voiced, you know, really, I, I know I trust Jesus and I know that he came, but I just, he, he's, he didn't, he had it easier. He was God. He could love this person that is really hard to love because he's perfect. Have you ever thought that? And if you have, you need, to do, you, need, you need to cast that out of your mind. Because the Bible teaches there is nothing about your human experience that Jesus himself does not know intimately. He was fully human. He understands and has experienced the realities of life as we know it. Perhaps even more deeply than we have. So if you find yourself thinking that, here is a way to maybe turn the tide. Instead of uh, thinking, well, you know, I don't... I just can't see how Jesus can kind of relate to this. That's a cue. Wow, there's an opportunity for you to take that experience, take it to the Scriptures, and ask God to show you the beauty and the good news of Jesus as a human being. Fully God, but fully man. And ask God to show you how is it that you can delight in this Jesus who's born of woman. 
But then Paul also says that he was born under law. As a true human, he not only fully identifies with and takes on, takes to himself true humanity, he's born under the law. In other words, he came under the obligation to perfectly obey God's law. In other words, he enters into the very same spiritual enslavement, if you will, in order to free you from it. That he came, the light of the world, in whom is life itself, under the law, which cannot give life, in order to obey the law, in order that in him you and I might find life, and that God by his Spirit would bring about the beauty and the glory of his law in your life. So when Paul says that he was born under the law, he's saying that Jesus fulfills all the law's demands. Jesus takes our place in the story. And lastly, he invites us to now throw off the yoke of what he calls the works of the law. All, every attempt to justify our existence and instead to take his yoke. When he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke, my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. So now what? See, the gift of the Father leads to the invitation of the Son. That in God sending his Son, Jesus now invites you into a life-giving relationship with Him, deep soul rest, eternal life, life that He alone can give. Instead of seeking to justify our existence, Jesus invites us into His rest to take His yoke, for He is gentle and lowly in heart. Remember where we began. We're we're meditating on, on... on what some writers call the highest blessing of the gospel. That Jesus has come to turn slaves into sons. Are you beginning to see the heart of the Father in the gift of the Son to set you free from the spiritual slavery that He teaches us and describes for us here in this passage? If not, if not, this is where you need to begin. This is where you need to begin to move from spiritual slavery to being underage in order to grow up into a child of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this passage and the good news of your word that holds out to us this this beautiful blessing that through Jesus... We're not just forgiven, but we are welcomed into your family as sons and daughters, that we are heirs of the promise of redemption. And so, Father, we pray that you would wean us off of anything that would resemble or rob us from finding our true joy and our true delight 
in the Son, in the gift of the Father, in His coming to be born like us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, please help us to trust in Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.